This morning's uh, scripture reading comes from uh, the first chapter of uh, the book that contains uh, the prophecy of Isaiah uh, found in the Old Testament. Uh, I'm going to be reading just a middle section of chapter 1, verses 11 to 20. Listen to these words. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow." Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Scripture. We thank You for its power. So we pray that Your Spirit would take it and apply that power to our hearts this morning, Father, that we may uh, see You clearly. Uh, through the vehicle of your word. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, If you've been with us just the past couple weeks, you'll know that uh, we recently finished a a short series on the book of Romans. We kind of keep coming back and forth to the book of Romans, and we'll continue in it uh, probably in in the fall again. But but where we left off was a section where Paul, uh, the writer of the book of Romans, was talking a lot about the law. The law, as we've talked about, is it contains all the kind of hundreds of laws and rules and commandments that are contained all throughout the Scriptures, and Paul helps us to think clearly about those laws. But Jesus, uh, when, during His public ministry, also spoke a lot about the law, those rules, those commandments as well. And in one moment when Jesus was approached by the religious experts of His day, He said this about the law in Matthew 22. He said, in summarizing all of those laws, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It is this uh, second commandment loving your neighbor as yourself that I would like to look at for the next few weeks. Because in effect, what Jesus was saying when he said this was that you are to love your neighbor with the same intensity and care with which you are to love yourself. Jesus, of course, when he said this, anticipated all sorts of of questions and arguments that would come when he said these things, 
And so he explained in that moment and throughout all of his ministry what exactly he meant by that. He knew that our tendency would be to soften his commandment. So he began to answer throughout his ministry who our neighbor is. You see, when we tend to think or use that word or think about our neighbor, we think about the people that either live next to us or the people that live near us. Sometimes those people are very easy to love. Sometimes those people are very difficult to love or very hard to love. But whenever the Bible talks about this term neighbor, it has a much fuller and richer meaning than what we tend to think about culturally. When the Bible talks about our neighbor, it talks about our family, it talks about our friends, it talks about our co-workers, our classmates, it talks about our teammates, it talks about those who we choose to spend our time with and those who tend to interrupt our time with all sorts of distractions. The parable of the Good Samaritan reminds us that our neighbor is not just those people who we like, but also those people who we dislike, our friends and our enemies. It includes those people who are easy for us to love and those people who are very hard and difficult for us to love. It certainly includes those people who are in need, those who are suffering under systematic injustice and oppression. In short, our neighbor is anyone who God puts on our path, anyone who we rub shoulders with day in and day out. And we are to love these people with the same intensity and care with which we love ourselves. C.S. Lewis, in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, picked up on this idea. I actually put this quote on the front of your bulletin this week. He said this, Next to the blessed sacrament, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. In effect, what he's saying is that every person you interact with, everybody you rub shoulders with, is an eternal being who has the fingerprints or the image of God all over them. So you and I are called to love them with the same intensity and care with which we love ourselves. Now, we all know that this is not the easiest thing to accomplish, right? So what is it that exactly gets in the way of our ability to love our neighbor? Well, the enemy of neighborliness at the end of the day is selfishness. It is disordered love the scriptures talk about. It's placing oneself or the love of oneself over the love of one's neighbor. So what I'd like to do this morning very quickly is look at this idea of neighborliness uh, from several different angles and connect them to the idea of, of radical or neighborly generosity. And the first angle that I'd like to look at this is it goes like this. It talks about neighborliness in the culture or in a culture of accumulation. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, uh, it talks about uh, this defining moment, the Exodus. And that was the moment in which God freed his people, the nation of Israel, Uh, from their Egyptian enslavement. And once they came out of enslavement, they had to figure out what it meant for them to be a nation, what it meant for them to be a people group, because they'd been enslaved for 400 years. 
So what God did is he established all sorts of judicial and economic laws that were to define this nation. And all of those laws, both economically and judicially, were based on this idea of neighborliness. They were to set up an economy that did everything that it could to avoid poverty. Deuteronomy 6 talks about this, that they were given the call to always work against poverty in their midst. They were given laws about unjust interest and laws that protected against generational debt and servitude. They were to be different from all the other nations around them because neighborliness and especially care for the vulnerable was supposed to be the defining characteristic of their economic and judicial system. They were to value relationship over commodity. The Egyptian nation, the one that they were leaving, was a government, as one commentator called it, a government that was defined by accumulation and extraction. Accumulate as much as you can for yourselves and extract what you can from those that you have power over. And this was the M.O. of all the other nations around God's people as well. The Canaanites, the Babylonians, the Persians, even the Romans. They were all governments that were built around accumulation and extraction. And all of these governments, a wealthy few, would have all the power, they would have all the wealth, they would have all the privilege, and in the process, the vulnerable would end up suffering. This would create in all those governments huge gaps between the haves and the have-nots. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds a little bit familiar to me. It sounds like the world we live in. It sounds certainly like the city that we live in as well. Uh, Ron Snyder, who was, uh, got his PhD from Yale, uh, wrote a book decades ago that he's updated several times uh, over the last four decades, and that book was called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And what he says in the book is that we live in a culture that buys into a certain lie, and that lie is that material possessions bring joy and fulfillment, that happiness is to be attained through limitless material acquisition. And because we live in a culture of accumulation and acquisition, we live with all sorts of inequities that inevitably result from that. He gives an example of what this means. He writes that in 2011, there were 165 million stunted children in the world under the age of five because of chronic malnutrition, 165 million. And yet he writes that people in the United States spend around $60 billion each year trying to lose weight because, in part, we have more food than we actually need to eat. Part of his research also includes the fact that the richer we become, the less generous or the less willing we are to even share those benefits that we have. This is what the culture of accumulation does to us. It says we need all these things to be happy, but it never supplies the very thing that it promises. 
Because the more we accumulate, the more we tend to be less generous and the less happy we end up becoming. You see, God's people, they were called to be different. They were not to be defined by accumulation and extraction and acquisition. They were to be defined by neighborliness, the intentionally putting the needs of others before their own, and it was to translate for them into a radical generosity. So how did they do? If you read the Old Testament, how did they do with it? Well, they didn't do very well with it. In fact, our passage tells us that much. But it also helps us to see neighborliness from a different level or a different angle. We see neighborliness in the culture or the context of the culture of worship. We just read a small portion of the book of Isaiah, but what we learn from the entire book, if you read it from cover to cover, is that the people of God had forgotten their neighborly calling. Instead of being examples to the other nations of an alternative way of living, they became just like all the other nations. They became a culture of acquisition and extraction and accumulation. And, And what ended up happening is that the wealth and power were consolidated into the hands of a very few narrow elites. And the vulnerable were left open to all sorts of injustice and oppression. And yet was so in some ways criminal about it was they managed to put a very lovely religious veneer over the whole thing. I think sometimes we lose the full effect about what the prophets say here in the scriptures when they give these messages to God's people. Imagine for a second that we had a prophet in our midst. I'm not claiming that we do, but imagine for a second that we had a prophet in our midst or at the very end of our worship service, we had a word from God that responded to what we did here this morning. And imagine that word came to us and said this, your worship means nothing to me. I've had enough of your calls to worship and your confessions of faith. I'm sick of your sermons and I despise your singing. Your long prayers are burdensome to me. When you spread out your hands to pray, I want to run in the opposite direction. Imagine how we would respond if that was the word that we received from the Lord. That's exactly what is happening here in the book of Isaiah. What is God doing? Why is he being so harsh with his people? Well, it's because they had disconnected their worship from neighborliness. They had done a good job of applying their wealth to their worship. Verse 11 talks about their multitude of sacrifices. It speaks about the seemingly endless sacrifices of well-fed beasts and rams and bulls and lambs and goats. You see, they'd done a really good job of taking their wealth and applying it to their worship, but they had forgotten their call to be neighborly, especially to the weak and the poor that were among them. So what does God say in verse 16? He says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Verse 17, learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. You see, true worship is connected to neighborliness. 
It is connected to loving one's neighbor over oneself. It's forsaking the culture of acquisition and embracing neighborliness instead. You see, friends, we can have the slickest worship services here at City Church. We can apply our wealth to have all sorts of bells and whistles in our time of worship. We can have meaningful and inspirational worship services. We can have loyal and faithful attendance. We as individuals can be disciplined in our small groups, in our prayer, in our Bible study. But if it is disconnected from our loving of our neighbor then what does that say about the caliber of our worship? In many ways, all of this boils down to really one kind of final or overarching angle when it comes to this idea, and that is neighborliness in a culture of self. Have you ever thought about the fact that we don't have to learn how to be selfish? We don't have to, nobody has to sit down and teach us how to learn to be selfish. We, we come out knowing how to do that automatically. Just take a minute to put your, even your thought life on trial for a minute. Think for a moment about what it is that occupies your thoughts day in and day out. How much of your thought life is devoted to you and your particular concerns? Do you get captured by worry, concerned incessantly about how other people perceive you? Do you get preoccupied with how to get yourself ahead or to win other people's approval? Do you get lost in somehow feeling like you don't fit in and feeling like in life you're always snubbed and feeling like the world is out to get you? Do you get captured in how tough things are for you, how no one seems to understand or appreciate you about how you just feel like nothing ever goes your way? I don't know about you, but I tend to think about myself a lot. And the more I think about myself, honestly, the more miserable I become. If that isn't convicting enough, put your your spending habits or patterns or your time management on trial. And we'll we'll talk about these in in subsequent weeks. But how much of your money is spent on selfish concerns? How much of your time is spent on selfish concerns? And how are all those things at the end of the day working for you? Tim Keller said this. He said, there's nothing more miserable or less interesting than self-absorption. David Brooks wrote a chapter in his book, The Road to Character, called The Big Me. I've talked about it before. And he says in there that we live in a selfie culture that breeds narcissism, and it is making us miserable. You see, self-love, obsession with self, only ever leads to misery. Neighborliness always leads to joy. This is why sometimes when you and I are lost in our own mess, when we are grieving or overcoming some sort of anxiety, sometimes the very best thing that we can do is just step out and give ourselves away to another person. Well, how do we know that all of this is true? How do we know that, that the path to, to joy is neighborliness? How do we know that this pattern is true for life? Well, we know because the gospel tells us. 
because the gospel tells us that Christ was our ultimate neighbor. You see, whenever we have this discussion, if we're actually honest with ourselves, if we really look at the caliber of our own hearts, we can become sickened by our own self-absorption and our own self-obsession. We can be grieved over our lack of neighborliness. And that's why I'm so thankful that verse 18 is actually in this passage that says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet. They shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. You see, because you and I fail to be good neighbors, because we've violated God's law and we do it every day, Christ had to come in order to wash us clean. Because of sin, we were the vulnerable. We were the spiritually needy. We were the spiritually oppressed and the outcast. And so Christ left the wealth of heaven in order to be our neighbor. He offered himself in the greatest act of self-sacrifice to bring life to us. He saved us. And now as God's chosen people, he calls us to give ourselves away for the sake of others. So friends, don't get caught up in selfishness and self-absorption. Don't get caught up in the empty worship that's described in the book of Isaiah. Don't get caught up in a culture of absorption and accumulation and acquisition. Instead, look to Jesus Christ, the ultimate neighbor, and find the strength to be the neighbor to the person that God puts in your path. Let's pray.